as we come again for the very Word of God. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read along with me, uh, to the Gospel according to Luke. I'll read a good number of verses here from, from the opening of Luke's Gospel. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son into the world to redeem us. And your timing is good and true. Lord, you have given us now this word for this moment. Help us in this time to listen, uh, to trust you, and to hope just a little bit more in you. By your spirit, would you guide us that we might see and believe. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, this is Luke chapter 1. I want to take up this morning these first 25 verses. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's a narrative, so this will be uh, plenty easy for us to follow. Uh, this is Luke chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the strength and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of God. Now, today is the beginning of this year's Advent season in the church calendar. You know, we often hear a lot of Christmas songs around this time of year. Uh, That's fine, that's good. We love all of these things, but the Christmas season really starts on Christmas Day and then continues into January. So the days before Christmas we call Advent. The word Advent doesn't appear in the Bible. If you're looking for it there, you won't find it. But the idea is all over the place there. Advent comes from the old Latin word meaning coming. Advent means coming. And it's not just the bare fact that something is coming. There's an emphasis on wanting a desiring for a thing to come. So just recently, we spent quite a lot of time in airports. It was delightful, not the airport, the things after the airport. But, but on some of the planes that we were on, they give you a little screen in front of your seat, uh, in front of your seat you know? And, and in some of them, you can see the little plane on that screen with the GPS that shows you where you're going. You can see where you've come from, and you can see that tiny little dot where you're trying to get whether that's you know, vacation or whether you're trying to get home, that's where you want to be. And, and that's a type of, of advent. There's a longing for that dot to get here, for it to come, that we would finally land. So advent carries that same sense of, of eagerness, the tingle of expectation, especially that the promised Christ would finally come. Now, if you ask the average Christian the reason for Advent, that is, why is Jesus coming? If you ask a Christian about that, you'll probably hear an answer something like, well, Jesus came 
to die on the cross and to save us from our sin? And that's a good answer. It's certainly true. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's really good news. And it's more than that. Good news is even bigger than that. There's more than just die on the cross to save us from sin. So when we sing uh, the famous Advent song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which we'll do in just a moment, it unpacks a lot more of why Jesus is coming and what he's bringing. Come thou long expected Jesus, born, why? To set thy people free from our sins and fears, release us. It's not just free us from our sins, but from our sins and fears that we would find our rest in thee. He is Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, dear desire of every nation, and the joy of every longing heart. Jesus is all of these things. So Christmas marks the arrival then of all of that, that the incarnation of Christ has come from heaven. He is God-made flesh who dwells among us. But Advent is not about the arrival, it's about the anticipation. So as Luke begins to recount this narrative about Jesus, he begins not with a birth, but with a pregnancy, with an expectation. And it's not just one pregnancy, there's two in the opening of Christmas accounts. There's two miraculous conceptions whose stories are intertwined. Of course, we know about the Virgin Mary. She's the one who, who bears the son that we call Jesus. But here we get a woman uh, who, who is Mary's barren, much older cousin, Elizabeth, whose son is going to pave the way for Jesus. These two women, Mary and Elizabeth, both are expecting in more ways than one. They're expecting a child, of course. We call them expecting mothers. But they're also expecting things that are going to come with that child. So during this season of Advent, we want to consider what is it that we're expecting? For Elizabeth, she's soon to be the mother of John the Baptist. But her expectation is not just that God would give her a good thing. She's expecting also that God would take away a bad thing. Not just give her a good thing, but also take away a bad thing. She's expecting God to remove her reproach. It's not a term we usually use. What does that mean? What's going on here? Let's set the scene a little bit. Okay, as we meet Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, in the beginning of the scene, we learn a few things about them. Both of them are, are Jewish. They're from the priestly line of Aaron. Both of them are called righteous before God, who walk blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they're without sin. It doesn't mean they don't need repentance and forgiveness. We all need that. It just means that they truly pursued faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. So they're, they're Jewish, they're priestly line, they're righteous people, and they're both older. Their age is given. For her, it's given politely. She's called advanced in years, which is a nice way to put it. 
But it sounds like, from what little we know of them, that they've got a good life, uh, but something is wrong. Elizabeth and Zechariah are childless. They're barren. And they're beyond the age now of ever being able to conceive a child. Now in our culture, even amongst Christians, many people would see nothing at all wrong with that. For us, having children is often viewed as a decision. We decide whether we want kids or not. In our culture, we have ways where we can control pregnancy, where we can prevent pregnancy, where we can even terminate pregnancy. And while we may think that children are a choice, that notion is completely foreign to the Word of God. All the way through the pages of Scripture, from Genesis to the end, children in the Bible are consistently portrayed not as a decision, but as a sort of expectation for both men and women. It is not yes or no, do we have children? It's assumed, yes, that most people would have kids and that that would be a good thing. I know this can be sensitive ground, so let me try to be as clear and careful here as I can. According to the Bible, a person who does not have children has not sinned because of that. Jesus was childless and he was also sinless. So to, to, to not have children is not sin but it is also not good. To be without children is to be in a sort of lack or absence. The way that the scripture speaks uh, is clear and consistent. The Psalm uh, 128 makes note about children. Listen to this in verse 3. The words are these. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Children are in conjunction with peace, with blessing, with fruitfulness. One example of this in the book of Genesis, you know the guy Joseph, the technicolor dream coat guy, depending on whether you're listening to a musical or not, the multicolored coat guy who, who grows up to save Egypt and all the surrounding areas from starvation, famous guy Joseph, his mom, Rachel, was married and barren for many long years before she was able to have Joseph. And her barrenness was a source of deep, deep heartache and even desperation for her. There's a time when Rachel 
begs, pleads with her, her husband Jacob about this as if he has full control over it. She says, Jacob, give me children or I will die. Do you hear how extreme that is? She prefers death over the prospect of being childless. Now, some people might think Rachel's being a bit dramatic there in that, and maybe she is, I don't know, but we have to at least notice how different her inclination is to our modern attitudes now. It's common to hear in our areas, oh, kids just aren't that important to me. I, I, I'm just not cut out to be a parent, it looks hard. It's not my personality, I'm not good with kids. You know, the timing was never quite right. I'd rather focus on my career or, or I'd rather be free to travel and, and to do other things. And besides, we don't even need kids in our society as much anymore. We have money and machines to do all that stuff for us. Let me just point out that none of those things are affirmed in God's word. Whether we realize it or not, to lack children is to lack a good thing. And Elizabeth knew it. I'm sure she felt it. We're not told the particulars here from Luke, but from what we're given, we could imagine what this might have been like for her. You know, for Elizabeth to hear her younger friends and family announce that they're pregnant again. And to be so happy for them and to celebrate with them and to go to all the, the, all the baby showers with them and yet to have mixed with that happiness some sense of envy and resentment. You know, you can imagine that her parents probably dropped some not so subtle hints when you're going to give us grandchildren sort of things, but as the years pass, they would mention that less and less and less until they don't even bring it up at all anymore. And then as she begins to age and nothing happens, she would often wonder, surely, is there something wrong with us? Is there something wrong with me? Even did I do something wrong to cause this? Because Elizabeth knows the Old Testament scriptures. She knows that there are times when being barren is sometimes a punishment. It's sometimes a curse of God for certain sins. Here's, here's one part of Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 20. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. And if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Childlessness is sometimes a, a curse for particular sins. Now, Luke, the author of our text here, assures us that's not the case here. Elizabeth and Zechariah were both told are righteous. They are walking blamelessly before the Lord. Their barrenness is not a particular punishment for them. But we could easily imagining, imagine Elizabeth wondering if that were true or not. 
you know, searching her life, rolling over in her mind, trying somewhere to find some possible reason or wrong she might have done to deserve this. She probably was not the only one that thought about that, by the way. Her neighbors might have wondered. People who knew her well, you know, as they get a little older and they still don't have kids, people would surely start to talk about Elizabeth. I mean, maybe they wouldn't say it out loud or around her, but they're going to think it. And when, she, when they see her, they're going to give her that side eye while she passes. Childlessness in their day is similar to the way people now sometimes view view homelessness. You see a person in a homeless situation and there's a flash sometimes in our minds that goes, what kind of wrong did they do to get there? In that situation, we, we pass judgment. We look down on the person, maybe just pity them. And it leaves a person in that situation with a sense of just being second class. It's accompanied by a feeling of disgrace and shame and reproach. That's what she went through. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you know what that reproach looks like. Maybe you never had the chance to have kids. Maybe you did conceive, but perhaps miscarried. You know the guilt and confusion and isolation that comes along with that. Maybe you tried and failed, tried and failed and tried and failed to have kids until you're just exhausted and you give up. Or maybe there's tons of reasons aside from having kids. Maybe there's many other reasons where you know reproach where you have felt the red face of reproach and the spotlight of shame among men. For Elizabeth, her reproach was long, but it was not forever. For her, everything changed to this day that her priest, husband, Zechariah, was drawn by Lot, and he steps into the temple of God to do his duty, and is suddenly visited by the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son, that they're to name John as an answer to their prayers, and soon Elizabeth is going to be expecting a kid one who would prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. So her once empty womb was about to be transformed into a red carpet down which would walk the one who would lead the way to the very light of the world. So Elizabeth carries within her an expectation that is about to reach the furthest corners of the globe. This is going to affect everyone. But in this first advent, there's also an expectation that is unique, that is just for her. 
for this aging, barren woman. God has now taken away the thorn in her side and removed her reproach. In this whole scene, she only says one sentence that's recorded here. It's at the very end, verse 25. She says this, Thus has the Lord done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Now that's her experience. What can we learn from this? What are we to expect from God? We know that even if we are righteous, pursuing obedience in the Lord, we're not Elizabeth. None of us is. Uh, we are not promised that every person who suffers from childlessness will surely one day be given a child. We may not. We also know that, that our every approach is not going to necessarily end in this life, that some burdens we're going to have to bear even up until our very last breath as a part of faithfulness to God. That's just the reality here. But there is something helpful here for all of us we're to see that this expectation is long hidden. This expectation in her is long hidden. Did you notice it in here? There's a curious little detail in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and, listen, for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus has the Lord done for me. For five months, she kept herself hidden. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Elizabeth and Zechariah have conceived a miracle baby, something that they surely wanted and prayed for for so many years. You would think that they would be bursting at the seams about it, and yet they kept it quiet at first. It seems they didn't even tell their family because Mary, their cousin, doesn't even know about this until the April, uh, angel Gabriel visits her to tell her about it. So for five months, this precious expectation is hidden. Now, why? Why does Elizabeth hide herself? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. There's lots of theories about this. Some people think Maybe she was afraid that she might not carry the child to term. She is on the older end of things, after all. There are some people who think maybe she needed time to just process all of what was going on privately at first. Some think that, that maybe she didn't want people to think she was crazy or to be the source of more gossip, you know, telling everybody, oh, look, I'm going to be pregnant here soon. Don't tell anybody, at least until she gives some evidence that she actually is pregnant. Or maybe some think this is an, an echo of some sort of earlier prophecy. I, I have to confess, I don't know. Some of these make uh, practical, logical sense, but they don't seem to fit with the text. I'm not sure I know a better explanation for the five-month hiding. What I do know is this. Luke wants us, the reader, to see this secret expectation. Even while it was quietly tucked away from public eyes, 
we get to catch a glimpse behind the curtain. We get to see what others didn't. That for half a year, to all the outside, nothing seemed to change. Elizabeth, her reproach would be just the same as it always was, but from the inside, her reproach is already taken away. Elizabeth walks around smiling with the joy of what she knows is coming, but no one else knows yet about this advent. Now, do you ever wonder how often similar things like this are already quietly conceived around us without us knowing? Do you ever wonder whether it's about childbearing or any number of things, how often God, in his perfect plan, has already replaced reproach with rejoicing and we just haven't realized it yet. It's still in the womb, quietly tucked away. All around us are all sorts of pregnant promises of God that are still in their, their, their first five months, that are still hidden to public eyes, but eventually those things will begin to show and in time, they will bring gladness to weary souls. You know, Elizabeth could never have guessed or imagined that any of this would ever be coming for her. She had no idea the role she would play in the story of redemption. Similar for us, we cannot expect the unknown until God reveals his promise to us. We know, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So we don't want to be presumptuous in our expectations at Advent, but we can and should expect that God will always be good and so whatever it is that he has prepared for us will also be good. This Advent season, together, let's lean forward. Allow ourselves, by the guidance of God, to hope, to trust in the Christ who would one day come that he will in time reveal all the good things that he has come to bring. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who sees every need who cares for every fear. You are the God who gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Lord, whatever our situation, we know that we have good hope and great expectation of your purposes in us. Help us to endure reproach whenever we receive it, and above all, to trust you in all your ways. You are good, and you do good. So we give you praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.